So tonight, as we come to chapter 33, we have the children of Israel in the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River. They're on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And again, Numbers is that chronological record, and it's more historical with the chronology. And so as we're wrapping up the book, Moses is being led by the Holy Spirit to give out certain details to the children of Israel and about the children of Israel in these last four chapters tonight and next Tuesday night. When we get to Deuteronomy, we get that famous book that's really a message and expounding of the law from Moses in the last month or so of his life. So where we're at contextually, it's the end of the wilderness wandering, and they are on the cusp of going into the promised land. We saw last week how the eastern tribes, Gad and Reuben, to settle for less on the east side along with half-tribe of Manasseh, and we studied that in topical as well on Saturday. So tonight, that's our context as we jump into Numbers and we pick it up in chapter 33 in verse 1. And this is a review of Israel's entire journey during the 40-year wandering. So these are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting points. They departed from Ramsey in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness and the sight of all the Egyptians, for the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord God had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. So this is the beginning, a recount of the beginning of the nation of Israel being birthed out of Egypt and out of that bondage and out of that slavery and that travail. And some 400 years have gone by, and as true as God's promises are, and everything is yes and amen, he had promised Abraham almost 400 plus years before, almost 500 years before, that eventually his descendants would become a nation in a faraway land in bondage, and he would bring them back to the promised land and faithful to his word. That is what God has done. And here in recounting what he had done for them in the last 40 years of their deliverance, we go back to the very beginning of them in their wilderness wandering, and really that coming forth out of Egypt, where they're no longer their identity is no longer slavery, in the house of bondage under Pharaoh and the powerful Egyptian people, but their own identity, their own national identity as the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, coming out of that with the Lord delivering them. And we remember that Israel coming out of Egypt, that Egypt is a type of the world, Pharaoh is a type of the devil, and their bondage is a type of our bondage to sin. And so we see that typology of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament because Jesus Christ, of course, he delivers us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He delivers us from these things. And what God provided through Moses is a prequel and a type of what he ultimately provides for us through his son, Jesus Christ, when we give our life to him and we believe the gospel message. And we read that when he did this, of course, he judged the, the firstborn. That was the final plague of the ten plagues on the house of Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart. We, of course, studied Egypt. Uh, we, of course, studied the book of Exodus back right when COVID crisis began almost a year ago. We did that remotely, and so we remember that story. And now they've come out. They're coming out of Egypt, and they're the nation. And when they came out, that last plague was the death on the firstborn. We also know that the ten plagues were all judgments upon the gods of Egypt, where God was showing himself stronger than their gods, that they worship their deities related to those plagues that he afflicted them with. And he's delivering them. But what I want to draw attention to is this phrase that they went out with boldness. They went out with boldness. They didn't go out cowering like 
recently uh, freed slaves or something. They didn't go out cowering with nothing. If you think of the history of slavery and the human experience, which has gone on forever and even goes on today with sex trafficking and things like that, and different people oppressing other people in various societies, that when they were released, I mean, their birth is a couple million people, and they're being released from this bondage. All they ever knew was being slaves, and they're being released, and they're not walking away cowering. Like they've got nothing and we're going to have to start at zero. We've got to get an unemployment line or we're new immigrants to a new country and we've got to start somewhere and, and build our way up like we've seen so many people do in American history in a wonderful way. In fact, many of you in this room have parents and relatives who came before you who did that very thing. They came from a foreign country and started over not knowing the language. That was my, my, that was my great-grandfather, Hoken, from Norway. That's, you know, that was uh, Sam's dad coming from you know, Romania under communism, and we all have these stories that are amazing stories, and it's very intimidating to, to, to come to a new country and to be a legal or an illegal immigrant and just try and, you're just looking for a better way of life, and we can only imagine how difficult that would have been in those circumstances, and if you've been in that situation, then you know. I think of Raul Diaz, who was our youth pastor for years. He started here as a janitor at Shoreline. He had another job originally somewhere else, but he was a Costa Rican immigrant, legal immigrant, and he was the janitor here. Over 20 years ago, he was a janitor here. And then he came to worship generation at Calvary Costa Mesa when we were there, met his wonderful wife, Brittany, and they eventually got married, and they came to worship generation here when we started the church, and he became a deacon, he ran the food and fellowships, then he became a youth pastor, and now he's there in Texas doing wonderful things in ministry and extremely successful in the oil and gasoline business, which... You know, is a wonderful story of like how those things happen. In this story, they could have been leaving with nothing. But God plundered the Egyptians. He gave them their back wages. Everyone talks about reparation and stuff. They got their reparation from God. And if God gives you reparation, you got it. If you're fighting for your reparation, you may never get it. But if God gives you your reparation and makes right things, then good for you. And they got the gold. They got the garments. The Egyptians gave them their stuff and their back wages. And so in a very interesting way, God brought about a sort of a justice of equity for them on their way out. And it says they went out with boldness. And I bring this back to us when we think about when we give our life to Christ, which is the fullness of this type. Because they went out with boldness because God had delivered them. They did not deliver themselves. They did not defeat the Egyptian army with a strong arm or with spears and swords and shields and bucklers. They watched God, their God, defeat their enemies. That was the key. It was their God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who set them free from the bondage that they were in. Only God could deliver them, and God did deliver them, and he set them free, and he gave them the plunder and the booty of the land that was rightfully theirs, which God knew they would need as they went in the wilderness to build the tabernacle, to prepare themselves in the 40-year wilderness wandering. God knew all of that, and they went out, with boldness. And when God is our deliverer and we pass from death to life, we do so the same way, with boldness. Paul the Apostle said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God and salvation to all those who believe. And this reminds us right here that even at the very beginning of their journeys, that's what it says, the beginning of their journeys. And when we give our life to Christ, there's the beginning of our journey. And there's a boldness that happens when we're born again in the Holy Spirit. There's a boldness when you stand up and give your life to Christ. There's a boldness when you decide between you and the Lord in a private moment, a private place, that you're going forward with Jesus no matter what happens, come hell or high water, that you're all in with Jesus. And you don't care what the boss is going to say, the boyfriend's going to say, the girlfriend's going to say, the parents are going to say, or, or anything. There's a boldness that comes when you're a new creation in Christ. There is a boldness. You watch people go forward at larger crusades, like Harvest Crusades in the past, and things like that. Somebody loves you, the festivals of life that Mike McIntosh used to do. And you see a you see a boldness. You see a boldness. When the Spirit of God is touching us and delivering us, especially in the New Testament and the fullness of these things, there's a boldness that comes with that. Like, I'm going forward. I've watched people in altar calls run forward. There's a boldness. And, and we want to see that new life. And the, the light goes on and there's transformation. And you don't know hardly anything, but you know that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you have the confession and there's a boldness. And you just know that Jesus is Lord. And that's it. And this is what they got here. They went out with boldness. And it's a reminder to us that we began this journey in boldness when we gave our life to Christ, if you've given your life to Christ. And he's the author and finisher of our faith. And there's nothing that's happening in 2021 or 2022 or beyond or that happened in 2020 that should move us from the place of boldness. We are profoundly, radically saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is on the throne. He's defeated Satan, death, the grave, all those things. And, and he's got us. Our deliverance is in the Lord. We're not going to suddenly manufacture a way by which in 2021 that we bring a great deliverance for the church or ourselves or whatever we have. We were, we were, we were saved by grace, and we went out with boldness from death to life, and we're sustained by grace with boldness. We're bold. There's nothing to be like, move, there's nothing to move us. They went out with boldness. If God wants to point at the Egyptians and give it to you, good for you. But either way, go out with boldness. They went out with boldness. They began their journey with boldness, and that's why it's so important when we give our life to Christ that we really have that firm understanding that's why the preaching of the true gospel of repentance and faith is so critical. Because God is a great savior for great sinners. But if we don't understand we're great sinners, then he's not a great savior. And we've been talking about this. Is God, if God and faith in Jesus Christ is just seven principles for a better life to help you be happy in the temporal, that's not the gospel message. But if Christ is the bloodied savior, crucified and risen from the grave to save us from our sins, then we have the Savior, and we pass from death to life. We have a positional righteousness, and we can begin to live the life he wants us to live in a spirit-filled way and fulfill those things he has for us. That's what it means to go out with boldness, that we, we're not ashamed. Paul was not ashamed. We don't need to be ashamed of Jesus Christ because the devil hates him, and the devil hates truth, and the world hates us. Like that, That's just... We have a boldness and an assurance through our faith in Jesus Christ that moves us with boldness and confidence. The history of the church is not people beginning their journey in, in, in fear and fulfilling it in fear and doing anything in fear. We are saved in boldness. We go forward in boldness. And we fulfill it in boldness. We don't shrink back. We're not those who shrink back. We are those who love and serve and conduct ourselves in humility. But we have boldness. We, we take great steps of faith and we expect great things to happen. Because attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. There's boldness 
There's boldness when you go to the Indians. There's boldness when you go to India 200 years ago. There's boldness when you let your hair grow long and just like a Chinaman, like Hudson Taylor did, and you just go for it no matter what the other missionaries say, the colonialists or the people of the land themselves because there's a boldness. They went out with boldness. So we're reminded in this text that we, we, we come from a place of absolute victory because our deliverance isn't us earning it. Our deliverance is us receiving it. And because of who Jesus is and what he's done, we have a boldness. I was reading about Tom Brady after the Super Bowl because, of course, I coached Olympic surfing and I studied all these great athletes and great coaches. And I read in detail how Tom Brady, all before the Super Bowl, was calling the guys on the Buccaneers, the defensive players, offensive players, and telling them how he knew they were going to just win the Super Bowl and win big. And he said, look, I've studied the game film. You guys are the best running backs. You're going to run through these guys, and here's why you're going to run through them. The defensive guys, they, you're, going to, you're going to shut these guys down like they've never been shut down their entire career ever in the NFL. And he said all these things, and it said it was called articles like Believe, and it was Believe Tom, Believe Tom Brady, you know? And it's like, it's like in sports, it's like Believe Tom Brady. And like, like these guys, it's like Dumbo and the feather, right? Dumbo, it's not the feather. Dumbo had the lucky feather, and he could fly. And, you know, he had to realize that he flew not because of the lucky feather, but because he could fly. But the feather taught him he could fly. And all this team, this team was the worst franchise in NFL history. And Tom Brady comes to town. When he went to Bucks, I go, like, I've seen this movie before. And when they made it to the Super Bowl, I go, like, I can't, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen any athlete do, to turn around a losing team and take them to the Super Bowl. And then to win the Super Bowl that convincing. I'm just like, it's, it's beyond Kelly Slater and surfing or Tiger Woods and golf. It's just, it's just it's, there's nothing to compare it to in sports that I can think of. And then I'm reading this article. It's because they all believed. Tom Brady convinced 50-plus guys on a football team that are grown men, you can do it. The lucky feather. It's like, we got Tom Brady and really good coaches. And I was like, I think it's like, this is for football. We're, we're world changers through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, like, we're, we're the church. Like, I don't need to believe in Tom Brady, he's a good guy, whatever. Like, we believe in Jesus. Amen. You know, the book of Acts is not believing in a great quarterback, the GOAT, grace of all time, but it's believing in the Savior at the right hand of the Father who sends us with all authority to do what he's called us to do. So they went out boldly, and we go out boldly. And if you read in your Bible, that's like getting the phone call in football from Tom Brady. You know, but it's way better, obviously. It's interesting how the world, like when you just flip the, the, the concept of expectation. And you know this when we work with the Chilean team, we're the worst surf team in the world when I became the coach of the Chilean surf team. We were absolutely the, legitimately, in the world rankings, the worst surf team in the world. And we became a very good surf team and with a winning record above average. But it took two years to convince these kids that they actually could do something that none of their four runners had ever done. Don't let the world dumb down our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ for the boldness that he has established in our life for who he is and what he's done, what he's already done in our life for us and what he wants to do in the future through us. This is an exciting time. Just find another gear. Let the world bet against the church. They always do. And let the church run it up in love, humility, grace, and truth. Now we read on verse 5. Then the children of Israel moved from Ramses and camped at Succoth. They departed from Succoth and camped at Etham, which is the edge of the wilderness. They moved from Etham and turned back to Piheharath, which is east of Baal-Siphon, and they camped near Migdal. They departed from Heroth and passed through the midst of the sea in the wilderness, went three days' journey into the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah, 
they moved from Marah and came to Elam. At Elam were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there. They moved from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped by the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin, camped at Dovka. They departed from Dovka and camped at Alush. They moved from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. Well, here in these verses, 5 through 15, we get an important part of their journey. A short part, but an important part. This is the events that preceded them making the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. So from going out with, having seen God deliver them, having gone out with boldness, these, these are these, a recount of these events that shape them like the prelude, the preamble. It, it shaped them for what was really going to change them, the covenant. This is all, so far everything that's happened in this journey, verses 1 through 15, is what God's doing to fulfill his word. But once they get to Mount Sinai, that's God making a covenant with them with the Mosaic Covenant, as we understand it. So all these events are preparing them for it. He has delivered them, and these are events preparing them for it. So think about this when we review a couple of these things. They pass through the midst of the sea in the wilderness. They went through the Red Sea. It coagulated, we're told, in the original language. It was a miracle. God provided a miracle for them to escape the Egyptian army. He defeated the Egyptian army right before their eyes, and it was, a, it was a profound deliverance that God gave them. You know, so often when someone truly gives their life to the Lord, they see some incredible deliverance right away. They just, there's some incredible deliverances that God gives us. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 concerning these events that this is called, as they went to the Red Sea, the baptism of Moses. It was a, it's called the baptism of Moses. They were identified with Moses as they went through the Red Sea and experienced that deliverance that God gave them. God will give us early deliverances when we give our life to Christ, and we, we can re- remember that in our own lives. There's things like, wow, we see, like that was a miracle what God just did. Like, and you know that you're early on in your faith so often exciting things happen. It's like, oh, it's so exciting. But then also early on in your walk with the Lord, we might have the Elam experience as well, where there's 12 springs of water. Romara is bitter water, so they came to the place of bitter water. So we, we find out just because you have three weeks of really good days with Jesus, you might suddenly have a very bad fourth week with Jesus after you give your life to Christ. That can happen. So Mara was the place of bitter water. But then they came to Elam, the place of 12 springs of water and 70 palms, and they camped there. And we find, too, early on, as we're going forth with the Lord, we need to understand there's a time to rest and be refreshed in the Lord. See, some people, when they give their lives to Christ, they want to do and do and do, because that's how they were before they were with Christ. They're doers, like Mary or Martha. They just, they're always doing. And one of the things when you're a pastor is you have to recognize people that are prone to do as opposed to rest, like Mary. So Martha, if you know the sisters from the story from the Gospel of Luke, Martha, 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 busy, busy, busy. And then there's Mary who sat at Jesus' feet. And there is a time to do and there's a time to sit. And some people are always sitting and they're never doing. And some people are always doing and they're never sitting. Well, the the walls of Elam there is like just refresh ourselves in the Lord. And if we don't choose to refresh ourselves early on in the Lord, he'll teach us and slow us down that we have to refresh ourselves in the Lord. We have to get on his cadence with the Lord. And the sooner we get on it as a believer, the better. And as we go forward in the Lord, there's a cadence. It's it's an ebb and flow. So even as we pass through the Red Sea, we have miracles that we see. We need to understand that we we have to constantly refresh ourselves or 
we're not going to be fresh and sharp for what the Lord wants to do in and through us. And then finally, they also came to the place where there was no water. And we'll, we'll be tested. It was a place of testing. Rephim was a place of testing. And we find, as we go forward in the Lord, early on, that you're tested. We, we will be tested. Our faith will be tested. Our convictions that we're so sure of a couple months ago will be tested. And if you can survive the preamble, you know, the first year of someone's walk with the Lord, they go through these things, those miracle experiences. God teaching them to be refreshed with him. And, and God teaching them, like, hey, it's a trial. All right, it's a test. There's no water. What are you going to do? Are you going to solve this? You're going to look to me to solve it. We go through those things. They happen in our life. And if we learn in the preamble of the first year of the journey that these things are happening and we learn these lessons, then we can, we can get to Mount Sinai and we can really get the word. Because Jesus talked about the parable of the soils where there's one type of seed that falls in the ground and it's just, it's plucked out right away because, well, the bird plucks out the one, but the other one, it gets in the ground, but it has no root. It sprouts up right away. Like the Red Sea experience, yeah, everything's good, but as soon as there's no water at Rephidim, those people are gone. And Jesus warned about that. We need to have depth. And as we go forward in the different seasons, God's going to teach us depth. But this all began in the beginning for them. There were lessons for them that he wanted to teach them and get in the Mount Sinai to go deeper. Because when you come to the mountain of the Lord, it's about going deeper. It's about blood. It's about covenants. It's about God's word in fullness. It's about the spirit. It's about grace and mercy. It's about things you do understand and things you don't. Because the things that reveal belong to us and to our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. So we come through these things, and they came through these things, and they came to Mount Sinai. So the first couple parts of this chapter deal with going out with boldness and the early lessons they had to learn and if you're new to the faith and you lead people to the faith and they're new in the faith we have to help them through these things they, we have to encourage them when they see those miracles to see that's the Lord and we have to encourage them that there's a time to rest and be refreshed in the Lord and we have to encourage them there's a time you for sure will be tested by the Lord and if we can run that little gauntlet and that preamble of what God really wants to do, we can come to Sinai, and those who are going to make it are going to make it. They're going to hear the word, and they're going to, like Jeremiah said, the word burned in their hearts. And they love the law. They're not afraid of the law. They love the Old Testament. They love the New Testament because it's all God's word. That's, that's who we want to be. So we read on in verse 16. They moved on from the wilderness of Sinai, camped at Kirbath Hatava. They departed from Kirbath Hatava and camped at Hezeroth. They departed from Hezeroth and camped at Rithmah. They departed from Rithma and camped at Rimon Perez. They departed from Rimon Perez and camped at Libna. They moved from Libna and camped at Risa. And they journeyed from Risa and camped at Kahalathan. They went from Kahalathan and camped at Mount Shepher. And they moved from Mount Shepher and camped at Harada. They moved from Harada and camped at Makalathoth. They moved from Makahathoth and camped at Tothan. Excuse me. And camped at Tothoth. They departed from Tahath and camped at Terah. They moved from Terah and camped at Mithkah. They went from Mithkah and camped at, at Hashbama, Hash, camped at Hashmana. And they departed from Hashmana and camped at Maseroth. They departed from Maseroth and camped at Bani Jachin. And they moved from Bani Jachin and camped at Hor Hagad. And they went from Hor Hagadad and camped at Jothbothan. And they moved from Jothbothan and camped at Abrona and departed from Abrona and camped at Izan Gabor. And they moved from Izan Gabor and camped in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. And they moved from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the boundary of the land of Edom. 
Then Aaron the priest went up on the Mount Or at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. So they departed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah. And they departed from Zalmanah and camped at Punan. And they departed from Punan and camped at Oboth. And they departed from Oboth and camped at Abiram at the border of Moab. And they departed from Izim and camped at Dibon Gad. And they moved from Dibon Gad and camped at Almon Dilathium. And they moved from Almon Dilathium and camped at the mountain of Abiram before Nebo. They departed from the mountains of Abiram and camped in the plains of Moab by Jordan across from Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jismoth as far as Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. So this is the recounting of what happened for 40 years, just uh, 41, 42 spots, depending on how you count the journey that they were on. And it be pointed out, there was a lot of activity during this journey. And you think how they moved out camp, they rolled out, how they pack it up and everything, the Levites and the all the Kohathites got to grab the ark and carry it. And all, just what a, what a, what, what, 40 years of hard labor in the wilderness. This really was, a, every one of these moves is not just like us changing campgrounds from Santa Leo to Carlsbad and then going on to Carp or something. This is a couple million people setting up, tearing down, setting up, tearing down their sanitation, their herds, everything. It's crazy, like, when you think how this nation, like, what nation ever went through something like this? This is so unique. And there are people of covenant, too which is probably why they're able to do it, because, of course, God had his hand on them as they're doing this. So these are the places they went. And again, the census at the beginning of the journey, everyone over 20 did not enter in except for Joshua and Caleb. Everyone under 20, it's their chance now. So there they are. One generation came out with boldness and saw all that the Lord did, and now another generation, some were born in the wilderness through all these stops, having to set up, tear down, set up, tear down, and now they're all there at the plain of Moab, and they're like just right on the east side of the Jordan River, like looking at Jericho and his big walls, going like, wow, so I guess I guess that's where my journey begins, huh? We're not we we're not going out like the forefathers, we're going in. We just gotta find a different gear. Same God, same promises, we just gotta enter in. They needed to exit, we gotta enter in. And even as the children of Israel went through the Red Sea coming out, the children of Israel, the next generation, are gonna go through the Jordan Sea going in, or the Jordan River going in. They're going to gather the 12 stones and build the altar. And both, both generations pass through water, one out and one in. And there they are looking at it. It's kind of like if you, you, like, if you know there's a big challenge in front of you, like you're pregnant, it's going to be your first baby. Like, well, what do you expect? You don't know that kind of a thing. And, or a job, or you're going in the military, or you're going to show up at Navy SEALs or something. And just all the things that you, you, you're looking at, like, it's like, wow, there it is. And you don't know what to expect, but it's like, whoa. Man, but God is faithful. And the plains of Moab, you have to know in your heart, a purpose in your heart, that God is faithful. He's as faithful to the next generation and the one behind you as he was was to the one in front of you and the one in front of them. We got to go for it. We got to find our own boldness going in as the forefathers had with the boldness coming out. We all got our chance. And they're there in the plains of Moab. There's something about being in the plains of Moab where you're just looking at it's like, right the plains of moab you're looking at jericho you can see it's not like it's hidden behind the corner you're like oh there it is man jericho wow joshua's just like what every morning's like like that you know (laughs) caleb's like 86 he's like 
whack, whack-a-mole, man, it's coming your way. Like, seriously, these guys were ready. They were the leaders, and God gave the nation good leaders in the plain of Moab. There were people ready to enter in. Now, look what the Lord says after this, the back end of this chapter, verse 50. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plain of Moab, plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger, you shall give a larger inheritance. To the smaller, you shall give a smaller inheritance. There, everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your side. And they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And there's some warnings in the Bible. That's got to be top of the list right there. That's it. What God is saying is all or nothing. Like all or nothing. Because you have to completely destroy this. These people, their false gods, their existence. Because I've already condemned them. And of course, we've talked about this before. This is unique to them. But this is what God entrusted them with. And I'm glad he hasn't entrusted us with that. But he entrusted them with that. They were the vessels of his wrath upon a people that whose iniquity was full. Because remember, to Abraham, God said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, and now it is full. And these people are beyond any redemptive elements, and God has them, they're under his condemnation, like an unbelieving world right now, and they're, they're gone. And so he's telling Israel, look, when you go in, God's taking them in. It's not if, it's when. And when you go in, you need to utterly destroy everything I tell you to destroy. Because if you don't destroy it, it's going to come back and haunt you, and it will bring you down and destroy you, and you'll end up being the victim of the very things that I'm judging because you did not fulfill my instructions and commands to you. And history shows us that they didn't. And Israel is what it is historically and archaeologically provable and all these things that they did for the 1,500 years they were there until the time of Christ in the land and what they did or didn't do. But it could have been so much more. Like, it really could have been more. And I don't really understand how that works, and I don't think any of us do because the things that reveal belong to us and to our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. But nonetheless, he told this generation, you get in there and you get after it, you do exactly what I tell you to do. Because if you don't destroy all of it, it will come back and destroy you. And so often we think of sin as something or bad company as something that we can work through this. But there are things, if we don't destroy it, it's going to destroy us. The devil only needs one thing to keep us from all that God has for us. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? This one thing you lack. He knew the one thing that would keep that rich young ruler from entering into everything God had for him. Now, obviously, we're not going in to destroy people or things or false gods and all that kind of stuff because, really, we just need to let Christ rule and reign in our heart, and he'll, he'll take care of all that in our life, and he'll be enthroned in our heart. Our life will speak against falsehood, and the testament of our life will testify against falsehood, and the words of truth will testify against the falsehood as well. The marketplace of thought proves the gospel. 
and the best proof of the gospel in the marketplace of thought is our lives showing and reflecting Christ and who we are and how we carry ourselves in personal character, integrity, and how we treat people. It's the goodness of the Lord that brings people to repentance. And a soft answer turns away wrath. And the wrath of man produces not the righteousness of God. And I'm really proud of this church and the congregants of this church and how we've carried ourselves as a whole in 18 years as a, as a church. But I'm very proud of us how we've carried ourselves in the last year. And I'd like to do things, I think I could handle things better than I did a few times here and there. Fortunately, most of my frustration was expressed in announcements and not in teaching. But I think it's very clear who, who we are and what we're called to do and how we're called to live our lives and how we're going to run this journey and, and stand strong and be faithful. And I mentioned on Saturday night when I was listening to Odin Fong, the famous Calvary pastor up in Downey last week at the pastor's breakfast at Calvary Chapel Downey there. Odin, the first thing he got up and says, I don't read the news. I don't watch the news. I get up, I read my Bible, and I apply it to my life with my family and with the church and with humanity. I'm like, hey, me too. It works really good. And it's like, when someone's really upset, I'm like, don't you know? I'm like, no, and I, I don't need to know. I'll know when the Huns are at the gate, you know, and then I'll just give that to the Lord too. But I don't have time for it. I just don't have time for it. And honestly, I don't think you do either. And the most editing I've had to do in Bible studies in the last year for podcasts is when I've had too much news and too much people that are worked up frothing in my ear. And the best Bible studies are the ones I got up. I don't even, I'm clueless. I don't even know what's going on in the world and who cares. And I, tonight, I don't know. I can tell you anything that's in contemporary news right now. I, I just tell you what God showed me with this text, contextually and application, which is much better anyways, right? The world's a better place if your pastor gets up and he's not worked up about the news. Trust me, and I think you do. Because you've seen me worked up. Like, it's just not worth it, right? It's like, no. So when you come in, destroy what has to be destroyed. And that's what we, we, we need. We need to go after the things that we have to go after. And we've got to be faithful no matter what it is. And if we're spirit-filled and we're spirit-led and it's the Lord calling us to do it, okay. We can, we can take that down. I mean, Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, you're going to uproot what's been planted against me, and you'll, you'll tear it down. That's part of the thing. But I'm more concerned what I need to tear down in my life with my attitudes and my character than about anything going on outside these gym doors. And I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, could, we should spend a lot more time on our knees before the Lord, letting him work in our life for the things of eternity in us, through us, and just let him be God and run his universe, let him police his universe, and let us just pray to be more of his ambassadors in this universe and fulfill what he's entrusted to us as his ambassadors in this journey, in our timeline. We'll do well. I understand why people are upset. I just don't need to be upset, and I don't think you do either, because you can just get so upset that you, like, jump off sides. You get a penalty, you know what I'm saying? Like, just, just stay calm. Everyone, discipline. Stay disciplined. And as they say in football, stay in your gap. You know, just, just stay calm and, and, and do your job. And that's what we need to do. And everyone's getting pulled left and right, and we don't need to do that. We need to focus on what he's calling us to destroy that's contrary to him, consistent with his will that he wants us to do. And that's, that's what I'm focused on at this point in time. So chapter 34, we read on. It's a short chapter. And it kind of carries over the same thoughts. Now, the Lord's, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, that is the land that shall fall to his inheritance, the land of Canaan, its boundaries, your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. 
That's all the Sinai Peninsula. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your borders shall turn from the southern side of ascent of, of Kirim, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barina. Then it shall go on to Hazor Ador and continue to Asman. The border shall turn from Asman to the brook Egypt. It shall be end of the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for the border. This shall be your western border. And this shall be your northern border from the great sea. You shall mark out your borderline to Mount Or. From Mount Or, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. Then the direction of the border shall be toward Zedad. The border shall proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazar Anan. This shall be your northern border. You shall mark your eastern border from Hazar Anan to Shephem. The border shall go down from Shephem to Riblah on the east side of Ain, and the border shall go down and reach the eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth. That's the Sea of Galilee. The border shall go down along the Jordan River, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. This is awesome. Verses 1 through 12, God just tells them, this is your lane. This is your lane. This is your lane. Get in your lane and run your race and fulfill your race and do everything I've called you to do. This is your boundary. See, isn't this the key to everything? Knowing your boundary. What's your boundary, what's not? Now, years ago, in 2009, Hector Moore and I, we went to Hawaii with Beyond the Dream, the movie, right after we got it done. And we went to the Big Island, we went to Kauai and Maui and Oahu. It was incredible. It was an awesome time. But what I remember most about that trip is when we were on the Big Island with the pastor from the Calvary Chapel there in, uh, not Kona, but Hilo side. And he said something to us, because he had been through a lot of challenges in ministry, been beat up pretty good, and he's a super neat man, refined in the Lord, really neat guy. But he said, you know, in Hawaii, you have your, your fields that you till. It's actually called your kuleana. That's your kuleana. And your kuleana is your mango grove. And this is your kuleana, this acre. And that's their kuleana, that acre. And he said in all the religious drama that he faced in Hilo and the challenges he went through, he said, I just figured out, I just got to take care of my kuleana. And knowing it's my kuleana, that I'm taking care of my field. And when it's their kuleana, I'm not involved in their field because that's not my kuleana. This is my kuleana. And if you think about right now, so much of the rhetoric, the hostility, the rage is people trying to police each other's kuleana in the body of Christ. And you know, just even this week, I'm on the phone with someone and, and they're a sweet spirit. And they're like, hey, what's the deal with this and that and everything else? I'm like, no, 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 calm down. Just calm down. Brian Burson is my pastor. He's a good guy. All right. Just Exhale. Brian believes the gospel, he believes Jesus is Lord, and he believes the word of God. Let's just calm down. Now, the decisions he's making, is that your kuleana or his kuleana? Like, so explain to me what's wrong with wanting, uh, where there's been social injustices and racial injustices too, that those would be right. Because I'm thinking those should be right, and I, you know, I know what's wrong and what's right. That's his heart. So one person's very uh, pro-life this way, and another person's more this way with civil rights. They're both right. Like, I'm not trying to police someone's kuleana that feels they need to do all these things for pro-life stuff any more than I'm trying to please someone else's kuleana that thinks they need to be doing all these things to make racial justices right. Let God be treating every man a liar. I mean, we all have our kuleana. And I know what Brian has said. And he, he's got his hands full just being who he is doing what he's doing. And this is where it's at. In fact, with this person I said, I said, you know, I, I, we had a number of black uh, 
men and women in our church in Virginia Beach. We had an interracial church, which was very rare for Calvary at that time in the early 90s, rare for any church in the South. And so I'll tell you, of course, I grew up in Virginia. You know that, right? I went to school, elementary school in Virginia. And they, have you ever seen the movie The Titans? Remember The Titans when they bust in the guys? That was me. They bust in uh, black kids to my school in McIntyre Elementary in fifth grade in Charlottesville in 1971, 72, 73. I lived that. I grew up in the South. The only friend's name I remember my entire existence in Charlottesville is Carter, who was black. He's the only true friend I had in Charlottesville, Virginia. But then years later, I'm in Virginia Beach, and I'm going to a men's conference with Tony Briggs, who's in the Navy, and he's black. He's one of our deacons, and we're in the heart of Virginia, where people would still fly Confederate flags at that time, or in the 90s. And we're going out there, we pull up a mini-mart. I was like, hey, let's get this stuff. He's like, uh, I can't go in there. Like, what do you mean you can't go in there? Come on, Tony, man. He's like, no, I'm serious. I can't go in there. And I looked, and I realized you could feel it. If you're a black man, you can't come in this mini-mart. It's that simple. And I was like, well, if Tony can't go in, I'm not going in. So let's just move on down the road. The most profound thing about that is Tony Briggs' wife had a baby shortly after and named him after me. For one thing, just one thing, we're not going to the mini-mart. Isn't that crazy? What's crazy about it is it shows you how deep rooted these things really are and how profound they are. That one white pastor with his black deacon in car says, I'm not going in, that he names his son after me? There's a Joseph Briggs in this world right now. Because one act on one day to stand with Tony Briggs. So when people tell me that Brian's going overboard, I'm telling just, hey, 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 just stand down on that. Let Brian take care of his kuleana, and we'll take care of ours. Amen? If that's his passion, good, because that's not a lot of people's passion. And it's not about political ideologies with Brian, because he made that clear. It's about equity and justice where there's been injustice in what are truly civil rights, not special rights, civil rights. We need to learn to respect that. Right? So... We need to know our boundaries, and we need to be in our boundaries, and we need to be faithful to do what God's called us to do in our boundaries, in our timeline. So I'm not trying to police 3800 South Fairview Avenue. I don't want anyone trying to police us. That's why we have a board of directors that are spirit-filled men to guide us, led by the Lord. And I don't need to tell Bill Wells what to do, or, or Joe Pettick, or anyone else. We just, we have a unity of faith. And we need to respect how other people feel for their passions. We're a very mission-minded church. Of course, to be mission-minded is for everybody in the body of Christ. But God has blessed us in certain ways with certain resources. And our lower overhead that we can do a lot more for missions than most bigger churches can. That's our kuleana. That's what we do. We move large sums of Orange County money to the ends of the earth. To people who have no means whatsoever to even come close to... like. You cannot even believe how people react when we give them just even moderate sums of money in some of these parts of the world where we send money, where they're just so, their, their faith has been radically changed for the rest of their life because we sent them, you know, a thousand or a couple thousand dollars. And it's like, whoever does that and who thinks of us, and when we send an email like, hey, God put you on our heart and we want to send you money, what's the best way to do it? Like, they're like, oh, God is real, God in heaven. These people have been serving the Lord for 20 years in impoverished countries with no pat on the back and hardly any resources. That's our kuleana. So we need to know our boundaries as a church, 
And we need to know our boundaries as individuals, and we need to thrive in those boundaries. If you're Naphtali, and this is your portion of the boundaries, then, then go get it. Go get it and get all of it. That's what we need to do. We need to produce 30, 60, 100 fold as God is leading us with the different things on our heart, our different passions, our different pursuits. I love the dance. You know, Pancho, you know, does anyone catch Pancho's Instagram as story? Like, you know, the story's only there for a day. It's the stories, you got to catch them when they're there. He's playing the bongos down there at Huntington Beach on Sunday. That made me so happy. I was like, wait a minute. Poncho's at Bongo Heaven down here on Sunday? You know, where they play the drums for like four hours. It's the same beat going over and over and over. You know, he used to be in a band. There's Poncho, like, he's turning 70 this month. I was like, good for you, Poncho, playing the bongos with Jesus on a Sunday afternoon in Huntington Beach. That's his kuleana. That's what he wants to do. Know your boundaries, enjoy the journey, and be faithful. Verse 13, then Moses commanded the children of Israel... This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half tribe. The tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance. And the half tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho, eastward toward the sunrise. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for, for the inheritance. These are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephno, from the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amunahud, from the tribe of Benjamin, Elided, the son of Chishmon, a leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki, the son of Jogli, from the sons of Joseph, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kamul, the son of Shiftan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elizaphon, the son of Parnak, a, a leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, Palatil, the son of Azan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahiahud, the son of Shilomi, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, Adalo, the son of Aminahud. These are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. I love this. So here's God. God says, when you, we saw that last chapter, when you go into the land. It's not if, it's a when. And then again, when you go into land, these are the boundaries, and then you're going to subdivide the boundaries. God's speaking from a place of accomplished facts of fruit already. Did you catch this? He's speaking as if it's already done because it already is done in his economy. We're like linear, but he's multidimensional. Like he sees it all. When you get in, after all is said and done, you're going to need to divide the land. He's just speaking what's going to be. And so he chooses 12 men under Joshua and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the new high priest, to divide this land. There needs to be responsible men to divide the land. Now think of me. Okay, so God's chosen 12 men before, right? He chose 12 to be the, the leaders of the people at the beginning in the first census in this book. Then he chose the other 12 to spy out the land. That didn't work out so well for 10 of them. And now he's got another 12. Doesn't God just reload all the time? Doesn't he just reload? He's always reloading. And we have to decide, do we want to be the fruitful ones when he reloads, or are we just going to be the people that are forgotten about, the people that didn't enter in, the people that brought a bad report? Are we the people that can be trusted with great things in a new generation? You know, it's interesting about this list. You've got to realize, of course, everyone on the list except Caleb has to be of the next generation. They're all under 20. So it's like, it's like this, 
It's like a young team, you know, but who do you got there? You got the veteran. You've got Caleb. You got the 80-year-old plus Caleb coming. He's like, hey, here's how we do it. They're like, dude, there's Caleb, man. We're going to divide the territory with Caleb. He's like, that's right. We're going to go in and we're going to get it. And we're going to divide it. We're going to cast lots. And God's going to guide the lots. And let me tell you about this land. Because on this side of the river, there's only two people that have seen it. Me and Joshua. So let me tell you about this land that we're going to get and we're going to divide. me. Listen to me. Right? Listen to me. Isn't it cool how God gave them one of the 12 is this veteran savvy guy who becomes a hero in the next book of Joshua because he goes, he's like, whoo, let's go. Like, you, we need to be inspired. We need to inspire. As we get older, you older people, whatever you think that is, asterisk, inspire from it because young people need to be inspired. Young people need to be encouraged. I was with Pastor Art who was Merging his church with Jeff Johnson this, this week. And Art's been teaching a lot for Pastor Jeff. He's a young guy. He's like 30, Latino. Great teacher. And he's terrified. And he turned to me at the breakfast. He's like, I'm so scared. I'm like, hey, if you're a pitcher, you throw strikes. He's like, yeah. If you're a pitcher, you throw strikes. So just throw strikes. Okay. He's like, ah, I get it. Now, those guys right here know I said that to Raul 10 years ago, first time he taught. I said, throw strikes. Going away. And I walked away. He's like, what in the world was he saying? Everything's like a baseball game. You're a pitcher, throw strikes. So Art's terrified all weekend. I sent him a picture of uh, Ibanez, the, the Dodger pitcher that was pitching or, uh, when, they, when they won the pennant. I sent him a picture. He's throwing the ball. I'm like, hey, throw strikes. Sunday morning, Clayton Kershaw photo. I was like, hey, throw strikes. We want to encourage people. We want to encourage people. We've seen people check out. We want to be people that are still here firing on all cylinders, and we want to encourage people who are coming up with us and behind us and even behind them. That's what we want to do. My Clayton Kershaw picture. Oh, he's like, terrible. i got to get teeth. Any more emerging churches? He's like, there's Clayton Kershaw. I'm going back. Hey, throw strikes. That's all I needed. He's like, thanks for the encouragement. That's who we want to be. We're not attacking, 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 policing, counseling. We are led, we're leading, and we're encouraging. That's the legacy of Caleb. That's why God's still using him. To him who has, to her who has, what? More will be given. Caleb just goes from glory to glory to glory. Isn't that who we want to be? Of course, 